Welcome to episode one of Cyclops is Waiting for Me, an X-Men, the animated series weekly recap podcast. I'm JC from Whiskey and Waffles. And I'm Rod Kim. You can find me on Spotify, I guess. Good place to look. Spotify is a solid (laughs) spot to look. Yeah. Cyclops is Waiting for Me is our weekly podcast series where we are going back and watching every single episode of the original 1992 X-Men, the animated series in their original intended script order, building up to the release of X-Men 97 coming to Disney Plus in 2023. So we are a recap show about a series that came out 30 years ago there will be spoilers and if you don't want it spoiled for you make sure to pause the podcast watch the episode and then come back and we're going to do our best to avoid mentioning anything about future episodes that we haven't covered yet by the way just for transparency we are not currently sponsored by or affiliated in any way with disney or disney plus but if they want to pay us in the future we would totally be okay with that don't forget to follow us on social media at cyclops iwfm pod on twitter instagram and facebook and of course make sure to follow us on all your favorite podcast services and finally we record these episodes in batches right now so if we're reacting to any news about the upcoming series we may be behind by a few weeks. Speaking of news, I saw today, to not totally date us on this one, <laughs> the original voice actor for Logan was in the recording studio. Nerdist reported on that. So glad to see that he's back in the series. That's amazing. It's like this slow trickle of like finding out who's coming back. I don't want to give too much weight. We might have some more news about that in the upcoming episodes. <laughs> Maybe we'll be breaking one of these things. We'll break it and then the episode won't come out for four weeks after <laughs> we break it. It'll be perfect. Awesome. Yeah. So on to the actual show. Today, we're going to be talking about episodes one and to Night of the Sentinels. So the part that I thought was really interesting was when they launched the show, they went in with the intent of the first episode being a two-parter. By the way, we're going to constantly reference Eric Leewald's book. It's called Previously on X-Men, The Making of an Animated Series. Great source of information for this. And of course, if we talk about anything that we found on any other websites, videos, etc., we'll shout those people out appropriately. Not going to take credit for anybody else's work. They decided that was something that they wanted to do with this series was to go big with it and they made some really cool decisions in that first episode and you know we're going to pepper in different things about the series throughout various episodes of this podcast so Rob what do you think do we just let's hop in and talk about what happened in the episode and see where the conversation takes us the first thing I noticed because we just you know we came in hot was that theme song and I know I'm a little impartial to it yeah Transparently, you're yeah. very impartial to it. <laughs> I did a collab with. Or sorry, composer. you're very partial, partial to, to it. it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> did a collab with composer Ron Wasserman. But also, like, I think everyone can pretty much universally agree. Like, fucking. Are, are we allowed to curse on this? Or? Yeah, sure. Okay. Fuck it. <laughs> Epic. epic we are song. now. Congratulations. Yeah. <laughs> we, we are officially a mature rated podcast established right now. Here. Yep. It's such an epic theme song. And we made a comment before. It's, it's one you just don't skip. It just yeah. sets the tone for everything. So I, I think that's the first thing that really stuck out to me. But also like the 90s styling, the words X-Men lying behind the characters as they're running and stuff. Yeah. And I also loved in that animated sequence, each of the characters, they had to create the name logo for each of them. They were not allowed to use ones that already existed within the Marvel comics. So those treatments were all original to the show itself. I didn't know that, but that makes so much sense. Y'all, like, intellectual property laws are weird. I think that's something we're going to learn more and more of as the series goes on. (laughs) I mean... We're just stealing everything and making a podcast about somebody else's property at this point. So, yeah. yeah. And we'll also see how this turns out. But as of recording, we don't have like an intro stinger theme song. We don't even have artwork as of recording. Oh, nice. (laughs) But I'm supposed to be writing something because of publishing laws. We can't use like the original recordings. I'm supposed to be writing the theme for this podcast with Ron Wasman, which is insane. Hopefully we do it justice. So let's get into the episode itself. It starts with a shot of Sabretooth, who at the time is unnamed. The thing that stood out to me the most is 
Sabretooth chucks a car towards the camera itself. I know Sabretooth is a strong character. I've never seen Sabretooth throw a car into the air. Like that had to be from the perspective of a news helicopter or something like that, because he throws that like five stories high in the air. It's pretty absurd. I noticed like different characters' powers and strengths and stuff were kind of fluid <laughs> throughout the show. Yeah. Because I also noticed how many abs does Sabretooth have? I, I noticed that in one of the shots is like, it's not just the six pack. I think he has like, like set, like a case. He might. Like a pallet. Like, yeah. just, like you count down, it's like it looks like he's diseased. So maybe all that ab power is what helps him like throw that car. Maybe. I'm pretty sure abs are not what helps you throw stuff into the sky, but you and I don't work out much. Right, so we yeah. might be totally wrong. <laughs> From there, we we cut over to Jubilee's house where her adopted parents reference the agency. I think it's her foster parents. They are. Yeah, yeah it's foster I think parents. I mentioned later, this is the foster kid. Later, I realized like how interesting it was for the 90s to have a Chinese American girl who's a foster kid and is a mutant. They were just like, we're just not going to hold anything back and she kind of becomes our eyes right like our experience for definitely the first episodes the series, yeah 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 which usually i kind of wince at a little bit if it's not done well but they did so well in this like i feel like i was learning everything with her because even though presumably a lot of us were somewhat familiar with the x-men by then it kind of introduced us to like what this version would be like you know yeah i thought it was interesting as well to have it be that combination of things that i realized 30 years later that i never would have back then but you have somebody who is in an adopted family she's only been there for one one year with this family. So that gives me the impression that she either had a recent tragedy or she's one of those kids who was going from foster home to foster home. And she's in that rebellious era. Like she's literally sneaking out of her house out the window because she hears that her parents have registered her with the agency. One thing that I thought was really funny is I would pause as I was watching the scene and I'm, I'm now in that Easter egg phase and I'm looking at the posters in her room and stuff. And there's one poster that has a big X and I don't know what band that's supposed to be a part of, but that was one of them. The one that creeped me out the most is it looks like there is a combination of the devil Ned Flanders as well as the skiing Ned Flanders right when you are looking at the door to her room. And I rewound it like three or four times to go back there and it was super trippy. It is 100% inspired by Flanders. I'm going to have to go back and find yeah. that now. That's it's especially interesting because that's uh, that was like, you know, in the middle of the, like, the Fox's like heyday. Yeah. So that I mean, would make this, sense. This, this was the second big animated hit for Fox. So they were literally only basing it off the fact that The Simpsons had existed existed if that was intentional. Otherwise, that was just, you know, one of the, the artists because these were coming from an overseas art house. Korean, I believe. I could be wrong on that one. A lot of animation was done in Korean studios yeah. at that time. That would be interesting to find out if it was like the same animation house in Korea or similar ones, you know, like. We'll look it up and we'll put it on Instagram. Right. <laughs> yeah. That would be interesting. Like if even if it wasn't meant to be an Easter egg, if one of the animators had no idea what's going on, they're like, mm -hmm. uh, we need something on that poster. Like use that one. And they yep. just point over across the room. And they're like, it's Ned. So after Jubilee leaves her house, you see the first image of the Sentinel and it is looking for yeah. Jubilee and the dog is barking at it and stuff. But Jubilee is not there. Jubilee has made her way to the mall. Which is such a 90s. It is the most 90s thing. And she escaped the arcade, which I think almost every kid could identify with at that time. Because if you're going to sneak out. At that out, time. Yeah, yeah, at that time. Yeah. yeah. I don't even know if kids these days know what arcades are. <laughs> That's not Dave and Buster's. I was going to say, there's Dave and Buster's. <laughs> we used to go to arcades that did not have alcohol in them. Right, or yeah. sports. It was literally like Primal Rage, Mortal Kombat, Street Fighter, and a bunch of pinball games, yeah. you know? <laughs> 
Yeah. And then we get one of our very obviously 90s moments, even more so than the fact that it's in the mall where there are VCRs being shown on the screen. As a teen, well, not even teenager, like a preteen, like arcades were kind of therapy because you, you go there, your friends might be there and you could work out like frustrations in the machine. It was like 25 cents a pop, depending on the game and stuff. I wonder for someone who didn't know what mutants or X-Men were at the time, if they were wondering like, oh, is it, is this agency or blah, 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 kind of hinting at her being like Chinese American or a girl or something like that. I know there's obviously the superhero things you saw the intro by then, but she talks about, you know, not being understood and stuff. And at that point, you don't see her powers yet. And this is giant Sentinel, which, you know, that's something I, I mean, I hated all the X-Men movies, but <laughs> one of the things I definitely missed on all that stuff was like the presence of the Sentinels. And I know they kind of appeared later on, but not really. It, I think it was Days of Future Past where you yeah. saw the, the remnant of the head or something like yeah. that. Yeah. But like in this series, they established right at the beginning, like these are going to be the goons, you know, of yeah. this universe. They were, the, they, the were they were going to be one of your primary antagonists. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, I, I love that presence of the Sentinel. It's just it's such a cool, a cool thing. I, I made a note here too. I don't know if this was like a, it was an accidental reference. It had to have been because it wasn't even a reference. But I love how the Sentinels take on Drax from Guardians of the Galaxy, like movies method of like hiding, like just stand and don't move and they won't notice because there's scenes where they're like, Four stories tall. Yeah. And then Jubilee or anybody will just walk right past Monados and they're like, they're the size of the building. That's obviously like a humanoid figure. Well, the thing that I noted, and it happens later in the episode, actually, the rule in, in comic books is nobody ever sees Spider-Man swinging above them or Superman flying above them because nobody looks up. And yeah. they, And I think that legitimately goes back to like the rules of like, being a ninja and stuff like that, where mm. people would hide in corners of of rooms up yeah. high because most people, their eyeline is never looking directly up. Granted, you're missing the giant legs that are next right. to you, but yeah. But from there, we start to see the crossover and we see Storm and Rogue in normal clothes, which I thought was, was cool. And they were exiting an Elizabeth's Secret, which obviously was a thinly veiled <laughs> Victoria's Secrets reference yeah. that, again, as a kid, never would Didn't have picked know. that yeah. one up. And we also see Gambit, who is coming on to a woman that works in a store that apparently only sells playing cards, which I don't know how that survives in a mall, but that kind of like lends itself to the fact that malls are wastelands now because you would have stuff like a playing card store. But Gambit is in full gear. And I thought that was really interesting that at least as far as I can remember for the first few episodes and, and what we watched and prep for this recording, you don't ever see Gambit out of it aside from a bathing suit in one of the episodes i actually made a note about that too because there's a line at some point in the episode where they're like how do they know i'm a mutant it's like well probably from the way you're dressed because all the x-men are like in costume for the most part except for this part with storm and rogue like shopping <laughs> yeah gambit's like in his full getup and like are you just in armor at the mall like <laughs> yeah yeah like storm and rogue look like your average beautiful people and, yeah. and rogue has like a little bit of a punk vibe because she has the multicolor hair and stuff yeah. but there's nothing that indicates that they are not regular homo sapiens and then we get the attack that happens and that's when you see storm and rogue pop up and you actually see them using their powers and you start to understand what the mutant aspect of of them is if you're unfamiliar with the concept going Mm. into the show what i thought was really interesting is when the sentinel scans storm and rogue it says unidentified mutants and basically is instructed to ignore them in the continuation of that fight gambit gets scanned and all of a sudden it switches for him being expendable (laughs) still an unidentified mutant but he is expendable at first i was confused because like how did they identify jubilee and not them then i realized oh it's the the mutant registration act right but then i was like why ignore any 
mutant. The whole point of this whole thing is that they're dangerous, right? So just be like, oh, well, no, they're fine. Right. This one's flying and shooting lightning at me. Well, <laughs> and, and my read on that was because at this point, the agency has only revealed itself as going after a registered mutant. Yeah. I'm interpreting it as they were not seen as dangerous enough for Rogue and for Storm that it couldn't take care of them and just get them out of the way. Yeah. And then as another mutant was added to the scenario, that's when Gambit all of a sudden turned to expendable instead of ignoring him. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're like, oh, we have too many in one place. Yeah, exactly. Also, and this is just like, you know, comic book TV logic. If the Sentinels were part of like a government program, like what a why like how hard would it be for like the people in charge of that program to like justify the mall being completely destroyed? Like the entire front entrance and everything just like, oh, we got three of them. Right. <laughs> but I think that's the interesting part in in the in the episode is uh for parts one and two, of course, is the agency is not officially U.S. government. They yeah. are a subcontracted agency. Yeah, yeah. So when we get to a later instance and as we continue on with our recap, they're going to have to explain it to somebody, but it's not the same as the FBI or CIA being yeah. the ones to go in there and do it themselves. Yeah, they're asking for forgiveness and not permission. Exactly. Yeah. So Jubilee jumps out to try to help Gambit. When the attention gets diverted back to her, she runs outside and that's where we see Cyclops in his full, not subtle gear I like I mean the dude is like, literally like a neon light and you get the real vibe for the first time how strong one of these mutants can be because Cyclops does a one-shot kill on mm -hmm. the on the Sentinel it's yeah, literally one optic blast head. and that's it this is a good point to mention all these introductions are like so good for having so many characters right off the bat as soon as you see Cyclops there you're like oh he's a boy scout oh he's in full like, tactical gear so like he's he's there on a mission but also he wants everyone to know like he's in charge yeah. and then even with Storm and Rogue Storm's first dialogue was like so like stoic and regal and stuff it was a great introduction like oh crap that's Cyclops I also appreciated that five characters that we've met so far have all been staggered the only exception being being Rogue and Storm at the same time, but everybody got moments yeah. instead of all of a sudden just getting everyone thrown at you the same time. And I think they wanted this show to be more sophisticated. Mm -hmm. And that was one of the things that Eric said in his book is they wanted something that kids could watch, but that would also still appeal to the adults who had been fans of the X-Men since the introductions, you know, in the 60s or even the giant size X-Men rebirth of the series, you know. Well, that's really forward thinking yeah. on their part. A lot of people on the team, you quote them now between the, like, the Lee Walds and Ron Wasserman and stuff. Everyone came to the approach of like, don't talk down yeah. or don't write down or whatever. That really works. We're still talking about 30 years later. From there, Jubilee regains her consciousness at the unknown location and she sees Beast, who obviously is just this really disconcerting image. And he actually says disconcerting yet provocative, <laughs> which is just so appropriate for that character yeah. because this is the 90s version of Beast. This is the one where he had the extreme like points on his hair and he was very, very animalistic and most resembling a blue ape. He would later in the comics like start to take a cat-like appearance and stuff like that. But this is like, he can't pass in, in human society. Yeah, yeah, he's like a gorilla. Yeah, exactly. Literally, he's the 800-pound gorilla in the room. <laughs> and then you also see Morph and you see what his power is. I thought it was really, really interesting that he's making fun of Senator Kelly and he goes, my fellow Americans, I am an idiot. And it's one of those things where you know 
a kid at the time was not going to get the reference to Richard Dixon. Me and my brother, my younger brother, would quote that to each other all the time without knowing at all what it meant. And I don't know why it stuck. Yeah. It was just the way that the voice actors said it or something. But I didn't know that at the time. And actually, as a kid, I thought that he was making fun of the president. And then later, I was like, oh, wow, this is so much more nuanced. Yep. <laughs> and then we see also one of the little like jokey eggs. They made it in. They had Calvin Clone on TV. Yes. Yep. That, I thought that was funny. Jubilee keeps following her journey through the location and they start showing various mutants on the monitor screens. You have Domino, you have Cannonball, and you have Magneto. And at the time, you don't know who any of those characters are. Yeah. And I believe we don't ever actually see Domino or Cannonball in the series. If we do, it's definitely not in the first season. Yeah, and it's like a throwaway probably, because I, I didn't even notice that. I recognize Magneto. Yeah, Domino and Cannonball. Cannonball's the one where he's soaring through the sky. Wow. Yep. World building. And that's where we see Xavier and Jean for the first time. And you definitely get very much the vibe of like leadership, and these are your tacticians outside of the battlefield, whereas the Boy Scout from Cyclops definitely felt like the yeah. guy on the ground. He's the one that has to make the hard decisions. Which is funny, because because I guess it's setting up the surprise for Jean like down the road because at this point we're like, oh, she, yeah, she's the thinker. She's like you said, like the planner and technician. Right. From there, we get a danger room sequence where we see Gambit again and he's fighting with Wolverine. I appreciated there was a reference to Wolverine's pride in that scene because if anybody knows about the events that led up to the show, there was originally a Australian accented Wolverine yeah. in a pilot called Pride of the X-Men. Also had Kitty Pride in it as yeah. well. But I thought it was funny that it was like, oh, Wolverine pride. Was that intentional? Or? Oh, I didn't think about that. Uh, yeah. I, mean, I could be looking way too far into it. We could talk about that other show some other time, maybe the bonus thing or something. That yeah. was such an awful pilot. I've still never watched it really? at this point. So then we see for the first time a shot of the mansion and you see that it's Professor X's school for the gifted. I always thought that was interesting because later in the comics, it would be changed to school for extraordinary youngsters. Mm -hmm. And I just thought it was really, really interesting that gifted was the choice of, of phrasing that they were using for the outside world. Yeah, I think in that conversation with Professor X and Gene, they talk about how like, oh, I didn't expect to like come out like this, but here we are. Yeah. So yeah, it kind of shows you that they've been kind of preparing and hiding for, I, we don't really know how long. No, we don't have any indication of how long. And we get the, through the eyes of Jubilee, understanding what the purpose of the X-Men are from Storm. And I thought that was a really, really great scene because she hates everything about herself that is a mutant, whereas Storm we don't know what her history is yet, is so proud of the fact that she is a mutant. And I think that's one of those things that accepting yourself ends up becoming such a big theme to this show. So many times throughout the course of the show, people are just coming to terms with the fact that they are a mutant. You, you can't some, change it. No, you can't change it, but some people are going to try to change it. Yeah, and that talk between Jubilee and Storm, this is one of like the first instances, I'm gonna see like how many more times this happens, where Storm has the zinger, but I think it's unintentional. I think it's only like funny in hindsight. Which one was it? So Jubilee's like, so this is a place for weirdos like me. And then Storm, deadpan, is like, like all of us. <laughs> I was like, what? I think that was I think that was intentional, unintentional. A little foreshadowing. We're going to talk about this more. And then we get a jump over and we find out the full name of the agency is the Mutant Control Agency. They are a private company. Gyrick is our lead antagonist there. One of the things that Eric Leewald talks about in his book is the fact that they made sure that it was not the government directly, but a third party agency because of Fox's rules about not wanting to look like they were going against the U.S. government. And that was, you know, you could have individuals who were not good, but they didn't want to go head to head because I'm sure standards and practices were yeah. 
would cause issues. Let's let's put it that yeah, way. Yeah, they gotta get that sponsorship money. Yep. And then following that, we see the the scene you were referring to earlier, actually, of the Sentinel that's basically hiding in plain sight, standing up against a building, and it really goes to the whole like, don't look up. That's all, that's all that it is. I appreciate though that they they tried to signal something to us as kids. Is his eyes lit up once she walked past? They're like, okay, maybe it was just dark enough. Right. But still, it's a giant robot. <laughs> yeah. There there's no way that she didn't see that. But we have to suspend disbelief because yeah. end of the day, this is a cartoon that was targeted to 10-year-olds as their main audience. Yeah, yeah. There is definitely a little bit of suspension of disbelief. Then we pop over and we see that they're going to send a team to the mutant control agency to try to eliminate the registration of all the mutants that have already been put in the system and such. And we actually see the start of two conflicts that happen. We see one with Cyclops and Xavier, where it is a conflict of ideology between the two about how to handle this, revealing themselves to the public and things like that. And we also see Cyclops and Wolverine have a butting of heads. And I believe it was because Wolverine wanted to go after Jubilee and Cyclops said, we need to take care of the registration first and foremost. One of many conflicts between Wolverine and Cyclops to go. Very much so. <laughs> it's an yep. important thing to say. Professor X decided to go to the mis- the mutant control agency because he recognized that the photo the Sentinel had in, in file was the one from the Registration Act. Yep. That signal. So it wasn't just he was like, oh, today's the day to choose violence. Yep. We get to it. The mutant power is really being showcased in a strong manner. You see Morph, who is able to make his face look like the security guard. The thing that is interesting is he does not change his voice and and the, the theory behind that is even though Morph can change his voice, he had not heard that security guard talk yet. So if uh, you haven't heard him talk, how is he going to replicate the voice? Interesting details right? that they follow because as a, you know, not 10 year old anymore, I was like, how is he changing the clothes? Then the voice thing is an interesting detail. Yep. Also, while they're walking through like the woods and stuff, Rogue is explaining like her backstory. Even like years later, I was like, wow, that was like good weaving in of exposition without just seeming like random monologue. Yep. She's talking about like her first boyfriend. And that's, I feel like that's something you would talk about when you're walking through the woods for like however many hours and stuff, you know? Yeah. And, and that's one thing that this show continues to do is they like to plant a seed and then pay it off multiple episodes later to come back and reference. This scene, you also see Storm uses her fog because Wolverine can smell the ozone of the laser light traps. Yeah, and and you see a little bit of Beast's character. He's like, you can sense the infrared spectrum. It's it's interesting that they're all learning about each other as well. Yeah, the first episode ends with one of your favorite quotes. You look as nervous as a long-tailed cat in a room full of rocking chairs. That's another quote that me and my brother, like it just stuck with us for years, but we know exactly what it meant. And then they ended on this like cliffhanger. And I don't know as a kid if I had seen that in a cartoon show. Especially not a first episode. Yeah. Yeah. Like I've, I've definitely remembered like season finales or I believe at that point we may have already had the who shot Mr. Burns moment. Oh yeah. But it, it was never the first episode which I think was just their way of getting us a full 44 minutes of TV to lock us in instead of the standard you only got 22 minutes so you have to force everything in there. So that jumps right into part two and the thing that stood out to me is the outfits of the guards for the mutant control agency looked like a red version of AIM and for those that don't know are the beekeepers is what they're affectionately like joked as within the Marvel universe but they look like red AIM soldiers and scientists to me. So you know what's interesting about that I wonder if there's actually this kind of attaches to it because 
Uh, it's a weird detail that I shouldn't have remembered, but I thought I remembered the the guards looking different. Then I looked it up later, and they did change them after the original airing because of some color matching issues. So I wonder if there was an intention, like you said, for originally, and then they, they were like, nope, and then they could only afford to color swap it later or something. Maybe. Yeah. This may be the only episode that didn't have a previously on X-Men. Right, and I think that literally came from the fact that the original airing... Mm-hmm. Because you had to include your previously on in your 22 minutes of airtime. Mm-hmm. So your previously on would have taken up at least 30 seconds or more. Mm-hmm. And your original broadcast was like literally episode one ended, episode two started. Oh, so I, I can't remember if I watched it in the original airing. Mm-hmm. But I think they did do a recap though, right? They might have. It was a short one, but I just remember missing the, the previously yeah. on X-Men. So they're breaking into the base and then you get another very 90s moment where they have to destroy the hard files, which are literally like printed folders of paper in the drives and the way that they're destroying the drives is literally just destroying a single computer monitor yeah it's like right before that era of like this usb stick will or is a three and a half inch floppy will destroy i mean we didn't have we literally didn't have internet connections at that point i mean the, the government probably did but the average person was so unaware of that kind of stuff that if they put it they would have had to over explain how the information's yeah. being shared and i love that storm like beast is like trying to hack it yeah and storm is like we ain't got time for this boom <laughs> which is like a little bit of like same energy as t'challa in the mcu later he's like i don't care for his introduction <laughs> yep. and then we get a little bit of a glimpse over to gyrek who has jubilee captured and they say that the first run of sentinels is going to be a hundred strong i thought that was interesting that was how few mutants or how strong they felt the Sentinels were, that they only needed 100. And then you get Trask, who is Bolivar Trask, who will continue to play a big part in in the series throughout. I spent a few minutes looking it up. You see right before Storm destroys the monitor, a bunch of names of people on the screen. And I was like, oh, are these Easter eggs and stuff like that? This was a point. I don't know who those people were. They were not Marvel references or character references in any way. There was like Michael Booton, so (laughs) B-O-O-T-O-N. And I found some of these names on IMDb, but they had nothing to do with the show. I think one of them, Jerry Bryan, was somebody who was an editorial for the Silver Surfer series, but that wouldn't come until years later. So maybe they were just like friends. Of yeah, people random, show. random names or friends and stuff like that. There's a great reference to the Tin Woodsman, which is sending them back to Oz. I yeah. thought that was that was a, a great reference. Again, literally as a kid, never gonna hear or find those. Yeah. And then we get the big moment of these two episodes where Wolverine gets taken out and as that is happening we see Morph going to his rescue and you know that something big has happened because you don't see the shot connecting with him from the Sentinel and it cuts to Gene and the professor back at the mansion and the phrase I don't sense anything happens to anything I could find that was the first time I remembered a show I had watched outside of the Transformers movie where a character was killed, especially in the first episode yeah. on broadcast. Yeah, how well the writers like understood both the universe and cinematic language because it hit so much harder than just showing a character getting shot, but also, like you said, showing their reaction, like, I don't sense anything. It's like, oh, they really understand Gene and Xavier's like, power set it's showing it non-sequentially because then like later on we do see kind of the events that happened and stuff but what like a great moment of tension yeah to just kind of like cut straight back to them back of the mansion and i remember seeing storm cry 
kind of got me. Like they did a really good job of showing the trauma. Yeah, you don't see the shot happen. You get Gene and Professor's reactions. And then you see the conflict taking place where they need to leave Morph and Beast behind because Beast got jacked up too. And then you start to see a replay of the fight. Cyclops had to call for the retreat. Everybody is just getting essentially decimated at that mm-hmm. point. And that's where you get the ongoing conflict between Wolverine and Cyclops because Wolverine is the one who says that the X-Men don't leave each other behind. Yeah, I don't know if this is jumping too far ahead, but Rogue stopping Wolverine with their power set. It was like both a moment of like showing what her abilities were because we got the little bit of a sense when she was telling the story, but I don't know if we actually saw it. No, we hadn't before. seen it up to that point. So to show her taking down someone as powerful as Wolverine, you know, we're, we're seeing something in like kids media showing like a, a woman. Yeah kind of overpowering a big burly guy that's supposed to be like this symbol of masculinity and like, you know. (laughs) Well, and and I thought it was also really interesting because it shows that they are not the fully cohesive team at this point. Yeah. They're having infighting. They had to leave two of their members behind, one fatally behind for everything that they knew. And of course, that's going to cause a major rift in this team dynamic. I've never figured out, were we supposed to believe that this was like their first mission? I believe it was supposed to be seen that this was their first public mission, like in one where they they knew there was no way that they could not be revealed okay. to people who were going to be their antagonists. So this is going to be the first kind of like declaration of war almost. I wouldn't say declaration of war. I would say that this was the we're here. This is like our new norm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I don't think they ever wanted to be seen as being in an antagonistic relationship because they want to be the people who can work with humans, but they also had to say we need to protect mutants. Yeah, yeah. From there, when Wolverine re- gains his consciousness and and such he he swears that he's going to avenge morph and there's like a really poignant scene and then we cut to see a woman president i noticed that too i was like wow yeah which i mean still to this day we've not had but they were definitely thinking in a progressive manner there's the the mention of the federal security agency which was i guess supposed to be their correlative to the fbi (laughs) or uh, cia there's mention of robert kelly they made a reference to new salem as like an area or something. So I'm guessing it's kind of another reference to like Salem witch trials. Oh yeah, I didn't even, I didn't even think about that one. Wolverine decides he needs to let off some steam. So he goes to a bar, biker bar vibe. And the bar owner, I don't know if you picked up on this, has a tattoo on his arm and on his shirt has the same logo that will play a part later in. But at the time, it just looks like a red bird image, essentially. okay, I didn't notice that. I need to pay more attention to the little details. Yeah, I I, I definitely was (laughs) watching watching it with that critical eye for references and and details. Cyclops goes to him. They have a little bit of a a bar fight with the locals. And he says, basically, do you want to go save Jubilee? So Cyclops goes to Jubilee's home, is talking to the parents. The dad, still not fully grasping what the scenario is, called the registration agency. A sentinel shows up to come after Cyclops. And then you get the very 90s not joke, which I thought was just... Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It was like one of those very much jokes at the time that Borat finally drove <laughs> into the ground. It was already not cool, but just like, oh, it's really, really not cool now at this point. Yeah. Yep. Not. Cyclops injures the Sentinel, but purposely doesn't destroy it. And the whole thought is they're going to go and track it back to wherever they are. I thought it was still really, really interesting that they chose to use Detroit as the base of operations for the Sentinel manufacturing when this is supposed to be happening in New York. Oh, yeah, because they make mention of like 
like DC and stuff like that. I kind of assumed that the Detroit reference was maybe an homage or like reference to like the Detroit like race riots in the 60s and stuff. Or I don't know if that was purposeful or not. Or- I gathered it as a part of manufacturing and big warehouses yeah, yeah. and stuff. But it was still really interesting that you have stuff happening in Washington, D.C. You have stuff around the school, which is New York, White Plains area, essentially. Mm-hmm. And then you have all the way in Detroit, which is not yeah. a close <laughs> flight. Granted, they have a, you know, a supersonic jet. But that Sentinel had to fly across multiple states, right. probably over portions of Canada to get there. Yeah. And yeah. No one knows because they don't look up. No. <laughs> Yeah. I forget where they said in this episode, but I think Jubilee, somebody asked her something and she's like, does a mall baby chili fries? I was like, that's possibly one of the most like potent 90s phrases ever. (laughs) I don't know if anybody born in this decade right now knows what that combination of words would mean together. (laughs) Yeah, no, 100%. We are bordering on boomer territory for knowing what it means, but no, you're 100% right. So we have a fight that takes place at the manufacturing facility. There's a lot of use of individual powers happening at this time. And the teamwork isn't there yet. There is no equivalent to the fastball special. There's not synergies between mutants and things like that. One of the things in the current New Mutants comic that's being published is they take combinations and they have code names for when two mutants are using their powers simultaneously because you're getting a stronger result than if you did those individually. Yeah, I was wondering too, now that you mentioned that they weren't cohesive, we saw in the Danger Room training stuff, they were like at each other, which makes sense because like if you're going to train, there's only so much you can do against like a wall and stuff. So now they're getting real world, you know, figuring out like we can't just all like shoot our guns at them and try to figure it out, you know? Yeah. I love during the fight, we actually see how strong Rogue is Mm -hmm. because she gets hit from behind and literally makes a body shaped dent in a metal floor. Yeah. And gets up. Like, no problem. She's good. They come out on top. Enough of the Sentinels get damaged that Gyrick and Trask get out of there. Cyclops really, really doubts some of the choices he makes, which is kind of something we're going to see from Cyclops a lot is even though he is the star pupil, he is the leader, he does not trust his own judgment mm-hmm. when it doesn't go the way that he originally intended. I thought that was really, really a great seed mm-hmm. to have in this episode. But it's interesting now being older, like kind of realizing part of the dichotomy between like Cyclops and Wolverine is Wolverine has like seen combat in his lifetime. Yeah. We're not sure if Cyclops has. He's kind of comes from like a place of privilege and stuff like he knows everything by the book, but he hasn't gotten his hands dirty. Yeah. And we're seeing that now he's like, he has to make the tough calls and now he has to like live with the, the emotional baggage of like those tough calls and stuff. And this is all in the matter of like a day or two. Yep. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is, I mean, just from the night of the Sentinels, it, might just be one night. It might be one night. It's a hell of a night. And yeah. they're, they're going until 6 a.m. Luckily, you get the, the time change by going over oh. west. <laughs> Maybe that's why they did Detroit, to yeah. get an extra hour of nighttime. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's kind of the end of the episode is the team is, they're still there, but they are not in a really heroic stance. And, mm-hmm. and that, again, is the opposite of what we expected from cartoons in the 90s. You usually had the big feel-good, everybody wins moment. And mm-hmm. it's like, no, this team has been broken already. And this is our first time seeing them. We've literally lost a character. And again, they had to fight to get that approved. And that was the, the thing that they were fighting the most is we need this to happen. It originally wasn't actually going to be Morph. It was originally going to be Thunderbird. Yeah, and I'm guessing the optics of that wouldn't have been great. 
because he's, he's Native American, correct? Yeah, I'd imagine there was definitely some decision that played into that of him being one of your non-white characters and then killing him off in the first episode. I think the interesting thing is Morph instantly became likable to the younger audience. Yeah. And I, I think... As great a character as Thunderbird is in the comics, he doesn't appeal to a young audience. So I think it ended up working out in their favor Mm -hmm. that they went with this alternate version of Changeling, who's a minor character within the comics. And we've actually never even seen this version of Morph through the comics. If you look at all the versions of him that exist, the one that would exist in the Age of Apocalypse and, you know, the Exiles and stuff, it is a very different Morph who was more based on this character than who Changeling was in the first place. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. And I don't know if this was this way where you were as a kid, but in my area, Morph was also the hardest to find action figure. Yeah. So like everything about between the show and the toys and stuff. I don't know if we liked him because he was scarce and they took him away from us so early or like, you know, yeah, was this that great of a character because he's literally just kind of a blank slate for anybody. Well, and he was the funny one. Like, if you look at who the characters were, especially coming off of the first episode, Cyclops is a sad sack. Mm-hmm. Wolverine is angry, but also really sad in the first episode. Mm-hmm. We don't know enough about Rogue and Gambit, although I think probably even at the time we were worried that Gambit was a little bit of a scumbag. <laughs> Yeah, you know, as I was watching it, I was like, I don't want to be too politically correct about it. Like, would he get canceled now? But it does seem like most of the people he's trying to woo are like into it too. So (laughs) he kind of... He doesn't come across as creepery, but he's definitely hitting on anything with a pulse. (laughs) Yeah. So, and one thing that we're always going to include in our episodes are our random expert factoid. The one we were going to talk about in this first episode was the fact that they had to fight to get a character killed in the episode. And I think that's one of the things that stands out the most to me, even looking back on this 30 years later, is they killed a character who was a main part of the team Mm -hmm. canonically, even if we didn't have the full impression of how much of the team until we get into later episodes. And it showed that there were stakes. All of a sudden, in your first episode, if you're establishing that somebody could be killed, it means that anybody could be killed and that's pretty damn different than where we were for saturday morning cartoons back then i like actually remember emotionally as a kid being invested in the series because of that early death if i remember right those first two episodes came out and then there was like months before the series came out yeah there were a few months in between because of delays with production because i remember having the vhs of that i i think at the beginning it was just like we taped it because fox would announce when they would re-air them yep and then later i did either my parents bought it or i read enough books and pizza hut gave us a vhs tape yep and just me and my friends, we rewatched those two episodes over and over. Like, can you believe they like they killed this guy? Like, what's gonna happen? It became like the talk of recess. Yeah, having that stakes in there, like, really good decision. Because even as like little kids, we sensed that means this is gonna be an awesome show. All right. Well, I think we've. We covered a lot. I yeah. think there was a lot to cover, especially the fact that this was the introduction of yeah. so many characters. Rod, any closing thoughts before we sign off? Uh, I'm still trying to figure out the like a like a sign off catchphrase. If anybody has any suggestions, yeah, <laughs> that's that's a thing. All right. Well, thank you for joining us. If you have any thoughts, please make sure to drop them either into the comments of the YouTube video that this upload is going to be attached to or the official Instagram post for this episode. We'll make sure it's really clear. Again, it is Cyclops, I-W-F-M pod, P-O-D, on Instagram and Twitter and everything. And if you liked what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on the podcast episode of your choosing. Thanks so much for joining us on this journey, guys. We'll talk to you next week. Yeah.